talk to you with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. The call for presenters is now open for Velocity London 2017. Velocity is inviting proposals from system engineers, architects, developers, system administrators, operation managers, site reliability engineers, and more. People on the front lines with stories of great success and worthy failures, especially if they provide clear ideas for what to do next. Proposals will be considered for the following types of presentations, 40-minute presentations, discussions or panels, as well as three-hour tutorials. Deadline to apply is May 2nd. For more information and to submit your proposal, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 68627. The call for presenters is now open for software architecture in London. Proposals will be considered for both 50 and 90 minute presentations, as well as three hour tutorials. 50 minute sessions will be interspersed throughout the conference to introduce new concepts, best practices, a view into the future, while the 90 minute sessions will dive deeper, giving you information, techniques, and workflows you can bring back to work and begin using immediately. They are also looking for intense three hour tutorials that involve hands on examples, working with other attendees, and frameworks and processes to implement for significant change in your current architecture. Apply to speak by May 2nd. For more information and to submit your proposal, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 68630. Tickets for FlatMap Oslo are available now. FlatMap Oslo is a functional programming conference with a focus on Scala and the JVM, taking place on May 2nd and 3rd in Oslo, Norway. Please go to 2017.flatmap.no to learn more. ElixirConfEU will be taking place on May 4th and 5th with tutorials on May 3rd. ElixirConfEU is a community conference created to promote education, networking, and collaboration within the Erlang, Elixir, and Ruby communities. For more information, visit www.elixirconf.eu. OSCON will be taking place May 8th through the 11th in Austin, Texas. The O'Reilly Open Source Convention combines the experience of the open source community with ideas and strategies for using open source tools and technologies, and gives you exposure to the full stack and all possible configurations. There's no event quite like OSCON, the best place on earth to sharpen your skills and discover new techniques, making you better at what you do and igniting your love of all things code. Registration is now open. Save 20% on most passes with code USRG. For more information and to register, visit www.oreilly.com pub slash cbc slash 50016. LambdaConf 2017 will be taking place May 25th through 27th in Boulder, Colorado, with training days available on the 22nd and 23rd and many conferences on the 24th. For more information, visit lambdaconf.us. El Europe will be taking place June 8th and 9th in Paris, France. Evan Zablicki and Richard Feldman will be speaking, and the rest of the speaker lineup is online. Early bird tickets are sold out, but standard tickets are still available. For more information and to register, visit elmeurope.org. Zurich Hack 2017 will be taking place in Zurich on the 9th through the 11th of June. A three-day Haskell Hackathon hosted at the HSR Hochschuler for Technique Vappersville. This is the sixth Haskell Hackathon organized by the Zurich Haskell Meetup Group and the first one which is hosted at the HSR. A fantastic venue located right at Lake Zurich and providing space for 300 participants. For more information and to register, visit zurihack.info. Oslo Elm Day is a one-day conference about the Elm programming language and practical use of Elm in Norway and the Nordics. It will be held in Oslo, Norway, Saturday, June 10th. Visit osloelmday.no for more information and to register. Curry Barcelona will be taking place June 19th through the 20th. 
a new and unusual nonprofit conference focused on programming languages and emerging challenges in industry. Kurian is a new conference focused on the intersection of emerging languages and emerging challenges in industry, as well as new ideas and paradigms in software development. Kurian also seeks to act as a conduit for fairing understanding and ideas back and forth between industry and academic programming languages, software engineering, and systems research communities. For more information and to keep an eye open for registration, visit www.curry-on.org slash 2017. O'Reilly Fluent Conference will be taking place June 19th through the 22nd in San Jose, California. Fluent spotlights the crucial technologies and frameworks of the web stack. JavaScript, HTML5, CSS, React, Angular, Containers, Dockers, and other emerging tools that are transforming the way web developers work. Join hundreds of leading experts, innovators, and web professionals for top-notch training, advanced development, and engineering content, and career-building networking opportunities at Fluent. Save 20% with discount code USRG on most passes. For more information and register, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 61309. Euroclosure will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on July 20th and 21st. Euroclosure is the biggest closure conference in Europe. Founded in 2012, the conference is a great place to meet closure developers and learn about what is happening in the language, in the community, and in companies using closure. The CFP is currently open and closes Friday, April 21st, and registration is currently open as well. Visit 2017.euroclosure.org for more information and to keep updated. BuzzConf is a non-profit open space conference about functional programming taking place from the 3rd to the 5th of August in Germany near Frankfurt. They provide a platform for people to meet, teach, and learn about functional programming related topics in any language. Ticket registration is open and you can find out more at www.buzz-conf.org. The StrangeLoop CFP is open. StrangeLoop is a multidisciplinary conference that brings together the developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technology in fields such as programming languages, databases, distributed systems, AI and machine learning, security, and the web. It will be held in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th through the 30th at the Peabody Opera House. Registration opens in early June 2017. Please apply to present. The CFP can be found at the website at thestrangeloop.com and follow the links to submit talk. Lambda World is back, taking place in Cadiz, Spain on October 26th and 27th. The call for papers is now open, so make sure to submit your talk or workshop. To submit your presentation and for more information, visit www.lambda.world. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show your support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery and a giant virtual hug out to everybody who's already supported the podcast there. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you'd leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Irina Guberman. Irina, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Of course not. 
So the way I started programming was not very early. I started a little later in life. In fact, I already had a degree in music. And then I actually immigrated from Ukraine to the U.S. And I already had a degree in music. And then I just had to go back to college. And I wanted to have a practical profession as an immigrant. I already had arts degree, so I really needed something practical. And I knew I didn't want to be a piano teacher, even though I had education for it. So basically, I was advised by friendly relatives that some professions that are practical in the U.S. are programming, medical professions, and a couple of others that didn't really sound good at all. I immediately said no to programming because I kind of didn't like computers. And the reason why is because my uncle was in electronics and he made a computer literally out of like whatever microchips it could be out in the brain and a cardboard keyboard with literally and um black and white TV that he used for display. That was when he tried introducing me to computers this way. It was kind of a turn off, even though it was just visual. And even though I was, I wanted to make robots all my childhood, <laughs> that didn't go very well either because basically any electronics clubs that we had, they wouldn't accept me. I was too little at the time and I wanted to do it. And in any case, somehow me and programming and Electronics didn't cross paths, even though I think they should have. Anyway, so when I went to college, I decided to pursue a doctor's or a nursing degree, and I got into nursing school. And it was actually kind of difficult to get in, but as soon as I got in, I got extremely depressed. And then during my calculus class, I was screaming out, some, like the teacher asked the question, and I was like shouting out an answer, like a smart. <laughs> and um one of my friends said, if you're so smart, why don't you go into engineering? And suddenly, I mean, it's not like I was so smart, but he was just joking. But when he said that, I suddenly thought, why don't I go into engineering? And I became very happy just thinking that I decided I'm not going to go into school that depressed me. So I started looking at different engineering degrees that were available at University of Illinois in Chicago, UIC, where I was going. and turn out that we had like very few engineering options, like civil engineering, chemical engineering, computer engineering, computer science, and mechanical engineering. So chemical was a no because both of my parents are chemical engineers, actually biochemistry and biochemistry engineers, and I hated chemistry. I was like very prejudiced. I think this kind of hurt me (laughs) along the way. And then mechanical engineering didn't sound very appealing. So like Computer engineering was the only thing that's left, and I thought maybe I should sort of revise my negative view of me this way. Like, maybe I should give it a try rather than just going back to when I was 15 and whatever impression I had makes no sense anymore. So I decided to try programming, and I also was determined that this time I'm not going to do anything I don't like. So I was going to choose a profession that makes me happy, that excites me, and I was not going to just go with something that brings money. So I tried programming and that was just an experience of a lifetime for me. I was extremely addicted and I couldn't get out of the computer lab. We actually, at that time, it was back in 95, we did most of the assignments in the computer lab and I I basically spent my days there and I just absolutely loved it. And I kind of was regretting that <laughs> I didn't try it sooner. It would have been a lot of fun a lot sooner, but hey, it happened. It's better late than never. 
So that's how I started. And so I've been programming since 95. And I've been loving my profession ever since. I, I'm so happy. I, I'm like really thankful for that guy who, who told me that if you're such so smart, why don't you go into engineering? If I ever meet him, I'll hug him. I'll have to thank him a lot for kind of helping me change my career to something I love. So that's how I started with programming. And the way you describe that computer your uncle built, part of me thinks that's absolutely amazing and would have actually loved to have seen that based off the geek in me that says, you just built it out of all these spare parts and you managed to get it to work. So that sounds like yep, something that now is like, wow, that's, that's something that is really amazing to see, even though I don't know that it, at that time, as you said, it's something that you could easily appreciate the feats go into it. But after a lifetime of doing this so far, that sounds pretty amazing. Same here. I'm actually, I'm really ashamed of 15 year old myself right now because I'm actually very interested in hardware stuff right now. Even though I don't really do it, I'm, I'm mostly a software person, but I'm really fascinated with what he did back then. So I, I'm not white in 15 year, uh, 15 year me who said no to that. I didn't, I didn't understand what I was saying no to basically. And so you get into your software computer science courses, you start your programming classes. Do you remember what it was that kind of clicked and made it exciting for you? Was that something that was pretty much right away from the very beginning or did it take the first semester or two? first class or two to say, oh, okay, now now I'm starting to see the pieces. Or was there that early magic in your schooling that said, we're going to just do something basic and you're going to interact with the computer and look, it responds to you. In a similar way to some of the people have the stories of just having a basic interpreter on the command line where it's like, look, just type this in and it responds. Just print hello world and you can get the computer to speak back to you. Yeah, so this funny thing is my very first class was actually programming uh, not HTML, it was this language called Supercar, which was basically for programming web pages. And the internet was kind of not that big back then, but we were programming web pages and we were trying to, we were creating little websites. That was my very first exposure. It wasn't even C or assembler, which came later. It started with creating web pages. And I didn't really care what programming language or what I'm doing. I just found everything addictive because you're trying to get something to work. And so you have a goal. You want to, you know, you have a certain assignment you need to get it to work. And that process was just addictive to me. And then it didn't even matter what the language is. I would just spend hours and hours to like get stuff to work. And, and I couldn't leave. I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to do anything until. So for me, it was just that whole process. Yeah, I guess like you said, the process of getting something to work the way you expect, that was the the fascinating part. So it didn't even really take me that long. As soon as I had started doing it, it was addictive almost right away. But I think it's got much more fun for me when, it, when we started programming in C. I wasn't too crazy about assembler course we had, <laughs> but... I think I really started enjoying it when I took my very first C course because the assignments were actually much more logical and much more challenging than the first course, which it was just a visual web page. It wasn't, it didn't have logical challenges in it, I guess, but was the, once we took the assignments in C, they had logical challenges. I guess that's what really did it for me. 
And yeah, that was really addictive. But I wasn't really good at first, but I couldn't really, really, I couldn't get anything to work by myself. I had to ask for help all the time. And luckily there were a lot of friends who already programmed before. So they, I had a lot of help from friends. Myself, I couldn't do anything. I actually learned to program by myself when I had the summer off and I had time to, I didn't have any other classes, no like no physics, no math courses. I could just sit down and focus on programming. And it was in summer when I actually didn't go to college. I was just asked for programs from my next class for my friends gave me the assignments for my next classes. And I did them by myself in summer. And I basically was determined to be able to write programs that, that are working by myself. And it worked just because there was no distractions and no other classes to worry about. I guess I would say for any, uh, for any beginner programmers, that's probably the most important thing is to actually be able to sit down and focus and deep dive into it without being distracted by other classes and other things. And I know you from the airline community and the strong community that is up in Chicago as part of the airline community. So if you're starting with the web pages and you get into assembly in C in university, what was the transition that eventually led you to Erlang? Or was there another functional programming experience that helped set the way? What was the transition looking like in the first exposures to the ideas of functional programming? So I think we had like a bit of exposure to Miranda, which is a predecessor of Haskell, actually almost the same thing as Haskell, as far as I know. But it was very little. We also had Prolog in college, but I didn't have much functional programming exposure. But I knew about functional programming and I was kind of very fascinated by it and I always wanted to do functional programming. But I was always an object-oriented programmer. I, at the beginning of my career, I started with C++. Then I, when Java became cool, I decided, oh, Java is so cool. <laughs> Again, being sort of prejudiced in a way that I decided to switch to Java and I liked it at first. And I did it for a while. I started in 2001 and I learned about Erlang in 2010, I think. And I learned about Erlang completely accidentally. Just some recruiter was sending me job descriptions. And he said that, hey, this job didn't require Erlang. I didn't even know what's Erlang. And I decided to look it up. And I found Joe's book and I started reading it. And the thing is, the reason why I was immediately like, totally falling in love with the language. I loved programming. I always enjoyed it. Like I said, it was addiction to me. But I never really fell in love with any languages. C and C++, they were cool. Java, were, I liked them because I kind of took all the languages for granted. I didn't really make very sophisticated choices about the languages. And then when I ran into Erlang, it was actually the first time when I really loved the language. I was like, this is so awesome. This is, it was my choice. And the reason why I appreciated Erlang immediately, maybe it's because it sort of agreed with my logic, like we all have our preferences and syntax and logical ways. And maybe it agreed with the way I think right away. But I think the real reason was not that. The real reason was I actually had really big calls with Java. I worked in a company that was doing online targeted advertising. And we were struggling with a lot of problems that like basically Java and JVM do not solve. And 
I constantly was feeling that, first of all, the fact that Java is not functional, that was a lot of my design. I felt like I'm hitting the walls, that I'm, I was thinking if it was functional, it would have been so much easier to do these things. Like, for instance, I had to do on like an abstract uh, syntax tree, and doing abstract syntax tree in object-oriented language, you feel like, oh, gosh, what the hell am I doing? It screams to be functional. It would have been so much easier. But then there is a lot of huge challenges if you're like in a, this, in such a massive application that we have like 50 servers at a time and we had thousands of transactions for like second. And we had all sorts of weird problems like somebody introduces an infinite loop and your, all your servers go down. It was a very challenging application and we lost millions of dollars just like from stupid mistakes. And it felt like for me, I always felt like something's missing for me with Java and the whole approach. I found out about Erlang at the very right time. So I think the reason why I fell in love with Erlang is not just because of what Erlang is, but also because it was a perfect time for me. I totally, Java wasn't missing what I needed. And then I started reading about Erlang and realized that this is a perfect fit. It's a perfect tool for the application I'm working on. And so that's very exciting. And I started going to all the meetups and conferences in Chicago. And uh, thanks to Garrett and Martin, uh, at that time, uh, Chicago was very, it was a great Erlang, <laughs> uh, it had a very great Erlang community. And that's when I met all these guys. And then I, of course, tried to uh, convince people in my company to start looking into Erlang because it's such a perfect fit. And it's a, if you look at the targeted advertising companies there, like AdRoll and I forgot the other one also starts with Ad, um, they use Erlang. It's because Erlang is such a perfect fit for such a problem. So when I brought this to my company, I was literally the only one and I didn't know Erlang so well. I knew it was perfect fit. I knew its benefits. I sort of saw the big picture. But I, I wasn't a mature airline developer to actually be able to quickly rewrite. I knew the server that I was working with the server along with another guy. And if I knew airline as much as I know it now, I would just simply sit down on the weekends and rewrite it in airline and show them what the benefits are. It's always better to show people, write it and show them how much better it works. And, and if it's already written by you on weekends, it's very easy to sell. <laughs> but, um, if you were just telling them, oh, let's do this, it's so cool, it's such a cool language, and in yourself, you don't even really know how to do it, and weekends is not enough, especially if you work for a startup, which is so busy where you already work weekends. So it, sort of, it was sort of like a chicken and egg problem. Airline would have solved our problems, but then to kind of carry on, we had to still support what we had. And the other problem was I was the only one excited about airline. The rest of the people were... Their responses were, like, a lot of people were, like, not all, but a few people were saying this, like, why would you learn another language? Java is going to feed me till I retire. And that's the radically, like, wrong approach to programming, which means a lot of programmers are not passionate about programming. They're thinking of software as, like, a bird feeder. And I know it's a bit of a negative thing to say, but that's what I experience a lot in software community in the real world and at the job where people just are concerned was, I know they all are concerned was bringing food to the table and making money, 
but if people are so passionate about software, they should not be worried so much about popular languages. They should worry more about the right tool for the job. That's kind of my philosophy, and I believe that you're not going to go start if you have this philosophy and bring it into the software world. And so hearing arguments like, I understand arguments like, hey, this language is not that great for this, this, and this reason, but arguments like, hey, why would I learn this language if Java is going to feed me? That was very upsetting to me <laughs> as a person who actually is passionate about software and using the right tool for the job. So it didn't work out. And I guess I didn't have the convincing powers where I worked at that time, but I still continued, you know, learning Erlang and kind of evangelizing it and talking about it everywhere else. And it seems like actually a lot of times it's actually working. For some people, it really clicks right away. For some people, they don't get it. And I really think that people who get it are people who actually run into problems that could be solved by what Erlang is. And then they appreciate it right away. I think to appreciate it, you actually have to encounter this very difficult problems that distributed programming poses. And if you didn't, you may not realize what Erlang is all about. You'll be just like, okay, syntax, whatever. <laughs> that seems to be a common thread with a lot of people I talk to who fall in love with Erlang, as you said. You have to have the right experience. And if you have that certain experience where you're either dealing with highly scalable systems or systems that need to be highly reliable or just even do more of the operations side as a developer where you're kind of hopping back and forth and actually have to understand how your software is running in production versus just throwing it over the wall to your systems team who's responsible for deploying and running and being paged and everything else. If you fall into one of those few categories, then all of a sudden, yeah, it seems like that's a common thread with Erling is, wow, I get the problems. I've seen these problems. I thought these were inherent in software and nobody's really tackled this and it's going to be like this for the rest of my life. And then I see Erling and there's actually a language that's designed around these problems and helping me understand better what's actually running in production. How does this profiling work across all these different nodes in Erlang and all these different applications and what's the state going on at any given point in time. And, oh, look, I get reliability and there's a mentality of, yes, things are actually going to fail in the real world. So it sounds like that's exactly what clicked for you, especially in a real-time bidding infrastructure yeah. that has a high transaction rate. Yeah, so literally my favorite. And it's not even the language. You know how different people prefer Elixir and um, some people prefer like the Lisp flavored Erlang. For me, the actual VM was the most important thing is the fact that you can have isolated processes and they can be killed. We actually tried it in Java. Like, <laughs> it was funny. I brought it up to Java people, like some software architects and then like, Hey, look what you can do with Erlang. You can kill a process. And they're like, yeah, you can do it on Java too. I'm like, no, you can't. And they show me like a for loop where something's sleeping. He's like, yeah, look, I can, I have a for loop where inside the for loop, the, his code, the code is sleeping and then I can kill it. I'm like, well, yeah, try a busy for loop where you like, it's, it's a, it's doing some real work, like a real infinite for loop that people introduce to our code here and there. And you can't do it. You can't kill that process in Erlang. You can't. I mean, the other things like the fact that you can create millions of processes and you can have your system if you properly program it, it's going to degrade forever. 
and you can, you know, go and fix it in the morning rather than jumping up at night. All these things, especially the VM, I found them fascinating. But as I go on and I do more airline, I'm finding things that are fascinating all the time. And I find them fascinating because I know how I, w- I would be doing them in other languages. So like, for instance, right now, I work on a company that what we're creating is a, a network for devices, like the internet for things. And uh, so the chief architect in that company, he came from a, a Java enterprise background and he found Erlang and he said, he literally just said, we're going with Erlang. So I'm like, I really appreciate the guy because he just kind of like me, he was from Java background and he ran into Erlang and kind of learned about it. And he said, wow, for our problem, Erlang is the right solution. So it's just like really open-minded guy. <laughs> and I really appreciate how he decided on his own that we're going to go with Erlang. So we use Erlang and I won't have to convince anyone because they already made the decision before me, thank God. <laughs> so the other thing about Erlang, the fact that it has amnesia, and I know that there's a lot of talk about amnesia, maybe if you need very high performance, you don't want to use it. And I know a lot of things you don't realize until you give them a try. And in our situation, you know, if I used to deal with milliseconds at my targeted advertising company, the company where I work now, we're dealing with microseconds. So that's a completely different beast, right? So some tools just won't go and you can't use them if you deal with certain kind of, with a certain scale. You just can't use them, right? So we are using Nija and so I know that WhatsApp, they are able to use Nija. They had to tune the hell out of it, but they are able to use it. So I'm like, okay, if they can use it, then I'm sure that it's possible. But the fact itself that the language has a database that's built in and you really don't have to worry about serializing and you just basically have a database that's built into the language. That's already fascinating. And so I was solving this problem, right? Um, so we have, let's say, four servers and we have replicated Nija on all four. We needed to make sure that the process sends like a TCP connection that's in a connection pool and it's in a process and we needed to send to corresponding broker server on the same server. So to solve this problem in Nija, you have to do like literally nothing because so I stored the pooled process along with the connection. And then when I was moving this from one server to four servers, what did I have to do? I had to do nothing because Nija does it for you. So if my process is now created on a different server and replicated, it will actually be on the proper node. So basically, I don't have to worry about changing my code, going from one server to four and going from just one node Nisha to like replicated Nisha. I literally had to do nothing. And we are not talking about just like some data. We are talking about processes, like the pooled connection processes. And I think that's fascinating. Uh, but it's, sometimes I feel like if you're talking to a person who was not solving this kind of problem, they will not be participating in your excitement. <laughs> they won't be as excited as you are. I can just imagine, I mean, it's all from the, all of that is doable, but being a kind of a mature programmer, I like solving problems by doing nothing. I like solving problems by writing zero code. <laughs> I know it's impossible, but I take pride in solving a problem with minimal number of lines of code and with minimal number of tools and with minimal number amount of effort. 
I guess I can be called a lazy programmer. And I always will spend a lot of time thinking, how can I solve this problem without doing anything? Of course, all the thinking accounts for doing, but in the end, I will come up with just a couple of lines of code or something. I mean, it's not always possible. Sometimes very elegant solution is not the most efficient and you better, you know, it's always bad to be too idealistic. You know, sometimes you have to be practical and abandon perfection and just go ahead and write your lines of code. It's not a sin. But my philosophy and my ideal vision is fewer lines of code, fewer tools, just more thinking and less doing, <laughs> less typing. And with Erlang, it's so possible because it's funny because all these problems were already solved. And it's not like these problems don't exist. They were just solved by a team of very, very smart people. And you have all these solutions for free and you just use them. <laughs> and I think the world has too many problems to solve problems that were already solved very, very well. So why do that? And so if you start around 2010, what was that learning process like? You said you picked up Joe's book and you had the Chicago community with Martin and Eric and a couple of and others. Garrett, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. But the tooling story around Erlang up until a few years ago was still always, you had to put some effort in. And it wasn't quite clear. So if you're getting in and you're starting this with very little books, very little resources, even at that time, I don't think Learn You Some Erlang had come out yet. Maybe the first couple of blog post chapter pages had come out. The Erlang and OTP in action was just about to come out right after you found it. What was that picking up process looking like as you started finding Joe's book and said, hey, this clicks for me. Now I want to dig in and get a better understanding of this? So quite possibly that if all the tools were available and I can, like maybe it, would, it wouldn't be so difficult for me to sell it at my first job. <laughs> and for me, because I didn't use it in production, so all the toy projects that were, that I was working on or like reading the book, when you're not dealing with real production stuff, absence of tools is not that critical. And I think by the time I started using it in production, Rebar 3 already came out. And, you know, I didn't really have this problem. I think, again, it's one big point. I agree that tooling is very important to bring in the community. But on the other hand, if people don't appreciate something, like if you realize the goodness of the actual language, you will find a way to find documentation and books. There were still books. There were people. There were documentation. I know it was harder to find information, but realizing how good this language is and how helpful it is, you will actually put an effort. The problem is that normally people, if they don't quite appreciate it and they're not sold on something, having all this tooling and having all this documentation really helps them get onboarding and they actually might appreciate it just because the proper documentation is out there. So it's critical. I don't think it was a problem for me simply because, you know, I just was sold very fast on Erlang simply because it was the right time for me. But I think for to just make the community big and strong, like having a proper documentation is critical. Like Elixir community is growing very strong because they're doing something very right about marketing and documentation and support. My previous job, I decided to like create a REST server with Elixir and Phoenix, and it's very new tools. 
but I had amazing support from the guys. It's just was like, I would send a letter, I would send an email with some question or a complaint or whatever, and I would get a response back or like with some suggestions, I would get response back with like within 15 minutes. That was amazing. And they have very good support and everything actually worked for me very well. The Phoenix server, I know a lot of people don't like frameworks and they prefer to write things from scratch if they're really familiar with web development, but I'm not much of a web developer. I'm more of a backend person. And I kind of didn't want to deal with all this details. So I wanted somebody who knows that stuff to do it for me. <laughs> and I just wanted to focus on the business problem. And it worked great for me. The, the whole Phoenix and Elixir worked great for me and support was great. So I kind of really spent maybe three, four days just kind of getting into this stuff. And then they helped. Like, every time that I had questions, they would help me out. The documentation was there. You can Google things. Or you can go on their Slack channel and there was always somebody giving you a lot of good advice. So like I literally got into that whole Elixir and Phoenix community. Like I started creating a server that's now in production within like a few days. And it was a very complicated server as far as business logic goes. And that's all I was spending my time on. As far as the framework and all the boilerplate, it was done for me by the Elixir and Phoenix team, which is very great. It totally fits my lazy philosophy that I don't want to be solving problems that are already solved. And just a great example of how having proper tooling and documentation and community is what's probably the most important thing in growing a community. It's not even how great the language is. Unfortunately, and that's again a philosophical statement, and it's just kind of what I observed throughout my career, really amazing software, really amazing tools, they're not as appreciated as well as very well marketed software. And because very smart people or very people who wrote very smart software, they always think these tools will speak for themselves. Or if a person is like very good at something, very smart, they can sometimes think that people will just see that. But it's not true. Marketing is super important. And I think it's super important for very good tools that actually deserve it. So sometimes that software gets such awesome marketing that it actually become popular. And I don't want to go into like very specific languages, which I personally don't appreciate, but they're much more popular because not necessarily like the marketing or, you know, where they come from. And I think that if a great uh, language like Erlang will actually do something about marketing and, you know, improving the tools and improving documentation and Actually, that right now it's, I don't have a problem, especially that I'm not a beginner. There's plenty of books and documentation. And now the tools like Erlang Performance Lab, it's quite amazing. I've been to Michael Slosky's talk at Erlang Conference in San Francisco, and I tried using it with my server. <laughs> it's really amazing. You can visualize Manisha traffic. You can visualize your supervision trees. This kind of stuff is what grows the community around any software. So I like Erlang Performance Lab is probably like my next most favorite thing because <laughs> I'm, I'm into visual tools a lot. I like everything to be visual and sometimes you can spend a whole day reading about something and then just watching a three minute cartoon would have done the same job for you to understand the concept. <laughs> yeah. So I believe that having Proper documentation and community support and tooling is critical for a language to gain popularity. And Erlang really deserves to be way more widespread than it currently is.
And then with the tooling, one of the other things that I'm curious about that Erlang usually hits as a stumbling block is people can get the syntax if they decide that they're going to just learn the syntax and strange or unfamiliar syntax is not going to be a problem. They pick up the syntax and how to write basic programs in Erlang pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. What was your experience with actually the Erlang way of thinking in understanding how to build processes out and how to make processes relate? Because people swing a couple different ways and they'll take it drastically. And then you see these other examples. And it was one of the things Martin mentioned in his episode and one of their impetus behind the Erlang and OTP in Action book and their Erlang camps that they did was trying to make people understand how you structure your applications, how you build the processes and supervision hierarchies. What was your experience in, I get the problems that Erlang's trying to solve and I can do the syntax, but what was your jump to understanding and thinking like an Erlanger as Tobin Hoffman's presentation went? So for me, it was, you know, I'm very biased. I'm actually almost the wrong person to answer this question because I fell in love with Erlang and I like the syntax and I liked even from the very beginning. I actually really enjoyed how it was very difficult to actually write a program that runs, but it was a process that sort of reminded me of building with Lagos or solving a puzzle. It was a very joyful process for me. And then funny thing is once you actually get it to compile and run, it actually most likely works correctly. So that part for me was, it was really fun. It was not struggle. It was, I kind of totally had this really awesome feeling of joy when I programmed an airline, which I haven't experienced in a while <laughs> since my college days, probably. But that's just about syntax. So everybody has preferences in syntax. So some people may not have the same kind of enjoyment of airline calls syntax as it is. Everybody has their own taste and blah, blah, blah. Understanding the actual benefits of the language and like the actual big concepts is what's very important. And luckily, I was reading Martin's and Eric's book and the chapter about building a cache where he literally says, okay, in this cache, every value will be a process. And I may not like get my history right here, but I think that was one of the things that totally kind of was you can like just throw Erlang process. <laughs> you can like have, and I read about it. Is it in, was it a Joe's book or maybe Martin's book where they stress out how in order to take advantage of Erlang efficiency on multi-core systems, you have to create thousands of millions of processes. That's what Erlang is for. So I sort of got that from this book. So I guess I ran into this concept early enough. And so the whole point of Erlang, you can create like millions of processes. And that's what makes it, this program strong. That's how it becomes, it's like your cores will be used evenly and efficiently, just like if you pour water over like multiple containers, <laughs> it will basically just have to trust it. I guess the trust or just the habit that you're so not used to a language like that, you would be, you know, if you're in Java, more than a thousand threads is not efficient or it's in C++ similarly, right? So people just won't let go of that control. Maybe that's why. And just kind of, it's a hard concept to just say, hey, you can create millions of processes. It's hard to understand that the underlying system takes care of actually distributing them among cores and doing it very efficiently. And that's a very hard problem to solve. And people just keep, with other languages like C++ and Java, they just keep solving this problem. They just keep banging their heads into solving this problem, which is very, very difficult. It's a very big team of smart people at uh, Ericsson for five years were solving this problem. I mean, that was not the only one. 
But that's why people just can't let go and just like, yeah, you don't have to worry about this problem. It's solved. Just create millions of processes. Think about your particular business problem. And I guess the letting go is the problem. But I guess I ran into the right chapters and the right books early enough to understand that this is the case. And nonetheless, I'm still sometimes, even my current project, I had problems where I would like have more long running processes and I would still run into problems because now we are at the microsecond level. We were like, we had very high demands for latency, like really high. We were at microsecond level and like even having millions of processes, but they're long running, it's, it was still a bad thing. So you just have to simplify your system to the point where it just, it works because you have this tiny little, very short lived, tiny processes and don't be afraid of spawning and killing them. It's much safer to do that than worrying about it doesn't take that many resources, especially on modern computers. If you want very efficient and very robust system, just create the process that will do the thing you need to, be, to do and kill it. <laughs> and I mean, it's not, I mean, it's obviously not a recipe for every problem. I'm just saying that even for me, I had to let go the second time of certain other concepts that were, there's a lot of concepts and programmers had that sort of you're holding on to. And once you let go, you realize that you can do things very differently and very efficiently. So sometimes when you're solving a more difficult problem or like more challenging problem, you suddenly realize that you have to let go of some concepts or like certain habits you had before. So the problem with airline maybe is not even really the tooling or the documentation. Now I'm obviously contradicting what I was saying before. I think the problem is more the letting go of everything you learned before. I'm not saying you should abandon it, but most of it, <laughs> to actually understand the benefit of airline, you might want to just kind of, sometimes I think it would be cool if people started learning programming with something that's more of a message passing and less of a structured programming. For years, we were sort of the very early software scientists, which were scientists, and they were usually from mathematics and physics background, they were scientists. There was functional programming was actually functional. Like they actually came up with functional programming back then, but it, it just didn't take off because it wasn't efficient enough for the CPUs of those days. But now these times are over. Now the functional programming is as efficient hardware we have these days. It's not an issue, but now the world is now object oriented and structured and whatnot. And it's just a matter of time before people will let go before. Universities and school will start them out with something functional rather than procedural and people will have different mindsets just to begin with. Even if you take the language Scratch, it's procedural language, but it's got message passing as it's, it's not object oriented. It's more as it's got functions and it's got message passing. So they already do things differently. So it's a different paradigm and they starting kids out with a different view of the world. So <laughs> that's very promising. I think that. It's just they bring more functional programming into colleges and not just colleges like Caltech or some of the high-end colleges. I talk to kids from these colleges. They have options and they they have various functional uh, language courses like Hustle and Erlang. And they have these options. But the average colleges, they just decide, hey, what's the paying language? It's Java. So they will cancel your Lisp and Prologue and Haskell courses and just have Java everywhere because that's more reliable as far as money making so that's it's a normal historical struggle i think it will just be a matter of time 
and I'm sure I deviated from the original question. Oh yeah, that the original question was how was my dive into the actual understanding of NLN and paradigm shift can be pretty difficult for people. They have to let go of their habits. And I wouldn't say you diverge at all because I think that was, as you summed up, it's that paradigm shift and what triggers it. Because even if you get the processes are cheap, sometimes it's, well, yeah, I'm doing all these processes, but I still put a single registry. So wait, now I just introduced a single point of failure or a single bottleneck now. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, wait. And then they hate that line after that. It's like, it's not our line, it's world. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, wait, okay, so now I still have to rethink how I do this process registry or single point of failure or whatever. And it's like, I thought I understood it. Now I got to go dig back in again because I realized I didn't actually let go of that paradigm. I just only got partway there. So we've covered quite a bit. Is there anything at this point that you think we need to expound on or that we would be remiss if we didn't at least bring mention to? Well, I wouldn't mind talking about my very recent experience with FPGAs and Verilog, and it's a very different, it's very, very different paradigm again for me, comparing to Erlang and actual software altogether. So what I wanted to talk about is that since we were kind of starting to talk about paradigm shift, back when I was working at this targeted advertising company where we, where we were using Java, I was able to come up with a pretty cool solution for a particular problem we had was like, our business people and having a sort of like a business language and they introduced infinite loops into our systems sometimes and that we would lose millions of dollars by bringing all the servers down. So I was able to come up with a pretty neat solution was that to that problem. And the reason why is because I learned about Erlang and like my brain was like became sort of very creative solving Java problems just by learning Erlang. So suddenly languages have limitations, but then you despite the limitations you can sort of if you're have interesting creative ideas you can come get around them and learning a language from a very different paradigm will actually help you with that so now i'm actually looking at vhdl and verilog which are hardware definition languages and they have nothing to do with software all right they're very very different they're actually inherently concurrent because they're not providing instructions on the cpu they're actually unprocessing inputs on input output logic so they're actually inherently concurrent it's actually more difficult to write structured code in these languages. So I'm very happy that I'm now doing something very, very different again, which is so cool. I think that if I will be so learning a language from a completely different paradigm again, so it's not functional, it's, it looks very much like C, even though it has nothing to do with C. You have to think very, very differently when you uh, write in these languages. And again, I think the more a software engineer is introduced to very different paradigms, it's just like learning a new foreign language. The first foreign language is hard, but then once you start learning more and more, you sort of understand how to learn a language. Same with learning very different paradigms. Your mind suddenly becomes much more flexible. So you're not married to any concepts or preconceived notions. You don't have habits. You kind of learn to abandon your habits. If you learn one language that's very different, or like paradigm, and then you learn a completely different paradigm again, and suddenly you're just not married to any paradigms anymore, you can become a much more creative programmer if you constantly learn a very different paradigm. And I think it's not even just, yeah, Adeline was perfect for the time when I learned, uh, ran into it, and I just, I love programming in Adeline. But I just 
think that for a software engineer to constantly grow and be very happy and kind of creative and very, very great contributor to software community, they have to introduce themselves to something very, very new fairly often. Even if I want to program Erlang until I retire, for instance, it doesn't mean I should just focus on learning Erlang and improving Erlang, like learning more and more about it. That's not true. I think the best way to learn your current language is just by learning some other language. <laughs> Maybe that's a funny way to put it, but in my experience, learning a new paradigm, you suddenly can see potential with your other language from a different perspective. So kind of bounce your perspective as often as you can to become a little more creative and a little more powerful as a software engineer. And that seems to ring with a number of things that past guests have said too, where you learn Erlang, you get a whole picture about concurrency and failure modes and realizing that software is going to fail. And you go learn Haskell and you realize how many side effects you might be introducing that you don't realize. And you go learn a Lisp and you start to learn about how you can start doing metaprogramming with macros and all these different, even though they're functional, they still all have their different twists to this. And so you mentioned the HDL and Verilog. What are some of those things that as you start looking into these and that are attracting your attention, what's the high level view of what's making you think differently from looking at these languages? Quite frankly, I'm not even sure if VHD, learning VHDL will help me as a software <laughs> developer because it, the paradigm is very different, not because of a different approach to software, but because it's a language for hardware. <laughs> so I'm just very excited to learn things that I had no idea about before. I, it's really just my thing. But with VHDL, you don't describe, you know, how uh, every software language is basically written to ultimately describe instructions that are sequential on the CPU, and uh, all these problems we are solving are for when you have multi-core, now you have shared memory, you have all sorts of other problems, and now they're being solved in very different ways. Now, VHDL is very, very different. That It's not a language for writing instructions to CPU. It's a hardware definition language. So every instruction that you write, it happens simultaneously. Uh, it's kind of difficult to talk about it. It's um. I talked about it in my talk at the Erlang conference that happened in March in San Francisco. And the cool thing is that everything you write is concurrent. So while instructions, they seem sequential, but that's because the way a programmer reads is sequential. But hardware is concurrent. You know, you have like 36 input pins and the circuit inside. So every little change in the input will change the whole system, all the outputs at the same time. So all the instructions are basically happening at the same time, while it's just really weird for a software person who've been writing instructions for a CPU all your life. No matter what language you're using, it's Erlang or Java or C++ or even Assembler, you're writing your instructions for the CPU. When you write in hardware definition language, you're basically creating a circuit. And that's a very different paradigm. And I don't even claim that it will help you be a better programmer. I, I kind of did, but I just basically was very generic about how learning a new paradigm helps. But I still think that learning about VHDL and understanding how hardware works is very, very beneficial. But it's a very different paradigm. It's like probably more different than anything. Even though it does, like I said, it looks like C, but it's nothing like C conceptually. 
So I'm just very excited to learn something very different. And I talk to more experienced VHDL programmers. The kind of problems you run into are super interesting. So I'm kind of <laughs> looking forward to that experience. Hopefully I have time for it. I'm, I'm working for a startup right now. So I actually don't have a whole lot of time for different stuff like that, but I hope I'm still going to find time. And another experience like that was, you mentioned that with different paradigm shift or different languages, I was not much of a Lisp person, but I decided to try Racket so I can introduce it to my kids. And I was like, I gave myself 15 minutes on a Saturday to just like play with it. And then my Saturday just went down. I would, I don't say, I shouldn't say went down the train, went down the racket. I spent the whole day like just playing with it. It was just amazing. So I probably next thing I'll be doing is uh, learning Lisp flavor Erling LFP that Robert Worthing created. So now I definitely deviated from the question. <laughs> no, this is good. And it's one of the reasons I call it functional geekery because these geeking out moments give that insight of some of these realizations. And as you were talking about the VHDL stuff, where everything's concurrent, it almost sounds like that paradigm shift forces you to actually understand what concurrency really means versus the illusion of concurrency that we have and how concurrency really works, even if we're swapping stuff out, whether or not it's actually in parallel or just, oh yeah, this thing could run before this thing. And here's how you get all your race conditions when you take it back to Erlang or java or c or whatever it sounds like it at least forces you to really think about the concurrency and you mentioned racket i would also i've heard really good things about matthew butterick's macro book beautiful racket and so that may be something else worth checking out with you and your kids yeah i'll just make sure i uh, allocate more time <laughs> uh, if next time i decide to uh, dive into racket i will make sure that it, it's not 15 minutes it's a very addictive language, so at least give it a day if you want to dive into. Quality family time, right? Yeah. My kids, unfortunately, are not as interested in programming as I am. Maybe they're just being rebellious. I had to pay them to go through um, one hour of code, but they did it. Maybe they're just as bad as I was when I was 15. They're teenagers. I didn't want to do anything that adults in my family offered. I hated everything that adults like my uncle or my parents were doing i didn't i wanted to do something very very different from what they did but i ended up loving electronics and computer programming <laughs> just like my uncle i guess i just at that time i didn't want to do anything that they're doing so maybe my kids are just like me in that respect we'll see <laughs> they can do whatever they like but racket is definitely a really super cool language to introduce to kids and make sure they are not hooked on sequential language constraints. And we're getting towards the end of our time. So you mentioned your presentation at Erlang and Elixir Factory 2017 that you just gave back in March. So we'll include links to that in the show notes. Do you have any other appearances at other conferences that you're going to be going to? Any any other things that you're working with that you want to plug? Or just any other things that you want to just... You mentioned the Verilog and the VHDL stuff. Is there anything else that you think could be interesting for the audience to check out and say, take a look at this? It'll probably shift your mindset. Yeah. So I'm not doing any talks anytime soon or anytime that's scheduled. But yeah, the reason why I was uh, looking into VHDL and Verilog is for programming FPGAs. So FPGAs is actually the reason. And FPGAs is something that people might want to 
again, it's also part of my talk. It's just a very light introduction to newbies like myself. I'm not pretty much a newbie. But FPGAs are quite fascinating if you care about performance. <laughs> this is probably the most performant programming you can think of because it's as close to the bare metal as possible, yet it's programmable. So you know how people sometimes say, okay, to make things really, really performant, when performance is very critical, you don't want to use Erlang, you don't want to use Java, it's not even C++, it's not even C. Sometimes you just, you know, you write an assembly language, right? But then FPGA is even closer to the bare metal than assembly. You're literally programming hardware <laughs> on the fly. And I've read about how FPGAs are actually faster than GPUs. I'm not going to go, there's really good videos about it and explaining the actual, how it actually works. But I would encourage people to check them out. I think FPGAs will be, I think they will be a big thing very soon and much bigger than what they were. They were just for a while, they were just for hardware prototyping, but I think they'll be coming very big sometime soon. Soon, of course, is a very relative term, but I'm really excited to play with them. I actually got one of PG that my company bought for the presentation and for the project that we're kind of exploring. For us, they're not too cheap, but they're, it's part for, I'm sure for any geek, if they really want to play with that stuff, they can afford it. So I think that's a very cool thing to look into. But again, I'm really biased towards this kind of stuff right now, so. That's what I would encourage people to do. Sounds interesting, and it'll definitely be interesting to look into that a little bit more and see how that might actually change the mindset now that you mention it. So where can people find you online if they want to follow you? What's the best way for them to keep updated? Do you have a website where you blog, put articles up, just Twitter, GitHub? What are the best places for people to find you? I'm on Twitter, and I have a GitHub and Twitter account. My Twitter is Irina Duberman. Dineonator is the handle. And I'll get that added to the show notes. Cool, thanks. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Irina, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. And as I mentioned, I've followed you for a while via the early community and coming out of that Chicago community and seeing some of your presentations at various Erlang conferences. So... It was very enjoyable talking to you, a nice rundown of the background and how you got into it, and a nice overview and reinforcement of thinking about different paradigm shifts and how they force you to think differently. So thanks for taking your time to join me today. It was a real pleasure talking with you. Same here. It was awesome. Thanks so much. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.